Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products that they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of service among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. Founded by Logan Esterling, Reed Design is pushing the boundaries of oboe and English horn reed making. They take the knowledge they've collected from hundreds of reeds and, with the power of machine learning, derive patterns and trends that accurately predict the characteristics of finished reeds while early in the sorting process. The result is quality reeds with characteristics you can count on. Using their products will save you valuable time and let you get back to what you love, making music. Visit www.readdesign.io to learn more. That's R-E-E-D-E-S-I-G-N dot I-O. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Twenty twenty two. Gonna be a good year. <laughs> Whoa. That was- <laughs> it's like that TikTok that it's like, is it me? Am I the drama? <laughs> I already feel like the vibe of this dish is so different from like the past couple. <laughs> we have been like bearing the brunt of the weight of the semester, and I felt like we were just like, Hi, we're here. Alive. We're here, okay? That's all you <laughs> And get. this one, we're like, we're here. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> it's break. We're on break. <laughs> oh, and happy we are. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, how how have you been? How has your break been so far? Your holidays, your travel? Talk to me. Well, I'm very good. I've been traveling. I am currently at my parents' house outside of Columbus, Ohio, and uh, we recently visited Becky's parents in Michigan, and I have an iPad with an Apple Pencil and a page-turning foot pedal, so I will be very excited to start using this new technology in the spring semester. That's right. We haven't forgotten that we owe y'all a dish on Elite's conversion to the iPad, but it's just been a slow conversion. So that's coming (laughs) in 2022. Glee's nervous about using it in a concert. Okay. I have seen it go wrong multiple times, but (laughs) now was probably not the time to say that. (laughs) So I take it back. I've never seen it go wrong ever. Is it, is it warm in here? How were your holidays, Jackie? They were very good. Um, we had originally thought maybe we'd be traveling, and then we saw plane ticket prices, and we were like, mm, 
maybe not. It ended up being the best thing ever because um, I'm sending love to everyone whose flights got canceled, um, whose travel <laughs> plans Terrible. were, you know, messed up by this resurgence of the pandemic. It just ended up being a really good time to stay at home. <laughs> and we couldn't have, it was purely a financial decision. We couldn't have anticipated, but we just kept looking at each other going, uh, oh, the weather's Ooh. horrible here. That would have also undoubtedly impacted it. And we were just like, yeah. Oh, God. Last Christmas wasn't the greatest, so we weren't totally in the Christmas spirit. I'll be honest about that. And so instead of celebrating Christmas, we didn't put up any decorations or even exchange gifts. We decided this year to call December 25th the Wilson Bowl. Oh, my God. <laughs> so we stayed in our pajamas all day. We watched true crime documentaries. Yes. We watched elder millennial classics like can't hardly wait Ooh. ate trash yes <laughs> just the worst junk food ever and it was <laughs> a delightful if christmas is not your thing for whatever reason i highly suggest you throw your own wilson bowl because it was <laughs> a lovely alternative <laughs> And now we're on to New Year's. Do you have any fun, like, New Year's <laughs> plans? Are you making any resolutions? No and no. We're taking it one day at a time. Just, <laughs> I'm just hoping to keep a positive headspace and keep practicing. That's all I need to be doing. Yeah. I I sat down, as you know, I usually make a big deal of my resolutions. It's usually mm -hmm. kind of this, like, end-of-year ceremonial thing for me. And I sat down to reflect and do my 2022 resolutions. And I was like, everything I went to write down, I went, this is kind of more of a to-do list <laughs> than an actual, like, there should be a distinction between a resolution and a to-do list, right? You know, that feeling when you've already bettered yourself so much that the thought of improving on perfection is just complicated. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I guess the, the, the stuff I'm going to try to accomplish this year is less like philosophical and more tangible. So I'm, I decided for the first time in like maybe a decade, I'm not going to do an elaborate list of 2022 resolutions, but I did come up with one fitting related resolution that I am actually going to be dedicated and try to stick to smaller, more manageable to-do lists. <laughs> I usually add everything that I could possibly maybe accomplish in a day and then always look like, oh, I only got like a quarter of a third of the things off my list because I'm always too <laughs> ambitious when making my lists. And so my resolution is to not be too ambitious in making my lists and having that be my only resolution. Hopefully it'll be more accomplishable. Uh, so what are we dishing about today? So you had the idea of New Year's Eve uh, playlist, whatever it may be. What tunes maybe generally speak New Year's to you? And then what are like your 2022 entering the year tunes? Okay. This first piece is not a piece for oboe or bassoon. It's a piece for piano, violin, and cello called Sans meaning breath by my favorite, the 
perfect, beautiful angel from heaven, Rena Esmail. It is so beautiful. It's like such a grounding, gorgeous, just incredible listen. Perfect 2022 mode. The second piece I have is a piece that I would love to play in 2022, which is Valerie Coleman's Afro-Cuban Concerto for Wind Quintet. Have you played that before? I have played it multiple times with multiple groups. I have not, and I want to desperately. So uh, we asked our listeners. Willard Aloysius says the Ruth Gipps Oboe Concerto. She's like Rafe Von Williams' little sister, but with her own personality and flavor. I love that. Yeah, lots of excitement for that piece lately. Mm-hmm. Um, Rhett says, I've been coerced by a trio mate to tackle the first of Alyssa Morris's collision etudes. Best of luck to you. Very difficult. <laughs> well, that's kind of fitting, right? 2021 was a pretty difficult year. Totally. Gorgeous. Technical. Very difficult. Dylan says, Dylan, Dylan, you must be an elder millennial. Uh, the Cranberries dreams because it absolutely slaps and makes me happy every time. Uh, some of our younger listeners and some of our older mis- listeners might not know that song, but for Galit and I's age group, it was on pretty much every movie soundtrack. Well, how does it go? I forgot uh, how it goes. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing, happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. Chemical City Double Reeds is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. We are delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish, Dr. Laura Bennett Cameron, Assistant Professor of Bassoon at the University of Texas, Arlington. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I would love to start by asking you how you started playing the bassoon in the first place. I think like a lot of bassoonists, it was an accident. Um, I started on the saxophone. Not to date myself, but Bill Clinton was president and clearly. <laughs> <laughs> the saxophone was very popular. It was very popular back then. Um, and so clearly I wanted to play the saxophone. And so I did. And everybody else played the saxophone. And I was 
Uh, I practiced a lot, and I was overwhelmingly mediocre at it. I did not make seventh grade all region, and I was very disappointed. Um, and I was second chair in my band. And at the end of my seventh grade year, my band director said, uh, Hey, Laura, we have a lot of saxes and we have no bassoons. Do you want to play bassoon? And I thought to myself, I was like, my mom likes the bassoon. We, we listen to the classical music station and my mom was like, oh, what a pretty bassoon. I was like, sure. Yeah, yeah, I'll play the bassoon, whatever. And so he gave me this bassoon to take home over the summer. And I opened the case and I was like, no. <laughs> I don't know how to put that together. I'm not messing with that. And then my parents decided to move um, over the summer. And so we left and I gave them the bassoon back. So I go to my new school and they're like, and I, they're like, what do you play? And I was like, well, I do play the sax, but I was going to play the bassoon. And they're like, you know, evil laugh. And they're like, okay, we've got you now. So they taught me bassoon. Um, and I remember when I got to um, B flat two. So for bassoonists, that's like whisper key B flat, not super low B flat, but the one above that, it was like something resonated way deep down in my soul. I was like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And I found my older sister. She was majoring in um, education at the time. She was getting a, um, an education degree, a flute player. And I was like, hi, what can I do to play the bassoon for the rest of my life? How can I, how can I make a living doing that? And she's like, well, do you want to perform for a living or teach for a living? And I said, I want to do both. And she said, well, you need to live in a big city and um, get a doctorate. And I said, all right, that's what I'm going to do. Where should I go to school? And she said, um, she named some good schools and the New England Conservatory stuck in my mind. And because I'm, you know, I'm 13 at the time. And I was like, that sounds like, that sounds really cool. That sounds like a great school, conservatory, New England. <laughs> so it stuck in my mind. And I was like, I'm going to go to the New England Conservatory. I'm going to get a doctorate. And I'm going to be the principal of the New York Philharmonic. And so far, I'm two for three. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not real sure about that third one, but like I, I, I'm two for three and I'm happy with that. So that's how I came to play the bassoon. Like, and I didn't look back. Like I drove like full, like forward with like full steam ahead and I never stopped to look back. I was like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I need, I'm going to have a college professorship. I'm going to live in a major, major like city and I'm going to find a performing job. And I just like, I was really bullheaded about it and I love what I do. And there was never another option for me. Like since I played that B flat, my first B flat. <laughs> Talk to us about what that looked like uh, tangibly. So going from a, you know, very focused um, high schooler into uh, collegiate study and whatnot. Um, in those younger years, what, how did this focus manifest itself in your habits? It's really interesting because I didn't have such a clear path. Like, you know, a lot of bassoonists maybe had better training and better technique than I did. Maybe I was just a bad listener who had great teachers. Um, but I didn't have a great concept of rhythm or how to practice as a high schooler. Um, and I went to West Texas A&M for my bachelor's degree because I knew I wanted to stay in Texas um, and that's mostly an education school. That's not what a lot of people think of as performance. They have a phenomenal education program. Um, and I studied with Dr. Tina Carpenter. Um, and I credit her and Don Lefevre, who's the band director, the head band director there, with teaching me how to count and teaching me how to practice. 
And those are two things that have served me really well. Um, if it hadn't been for the two of them, um, obviously I need to give Dr. Carpenter most of the credit. Um, there's no way I ever would have had a prayer of getting into NEC. I came to Dr. Carpenter as a really, really rough material. I think I had like a fair amount of like raw musical talent, a good sense of phrase and a concept of sound, but that was about it. I had no technique. I had no counting, could not sight read to save my life. Um, and she was really patient with me. Um, and she, she did a lot of really great patient work with me. And, you know, I practiced a lot and I put in the work, um, and I really credit West, West Texas with making me a much better, more rounded player than I came in. Um, and I think if I had gone to maybe a bigger school, I don't know that I would have gotten that kind of focused individual attention. Um, so going to that specific school with those specific faculty members was a really great call for me. What happened next? What happened after that? I, then I went to NEC. Um, I got like, I got in my, got into my dream school. Um, so I auditioned at several places and I got in at NEC, um, and I, I clicked really well with Richard Svoboda. Um, and so I didn't just blindly go to NEC just because that was what I had decided I wanted to do when I was 13. That didn't hurt, obviously, but I, I, you know, I took a lesson with Svoboda and I auditioned there and we, we got along really well and I really enjoyed working with him. He is such a normal human being. He's such a pleasure to be around because he's just normal. And I mean that in the nicest possible way. He's a normal human being who plays like a divine being and teaches like a divine being, but he's not quirky or weird or difficult to work with. Um, and so that was really nice for me to work with somebody at such a high level who is just so nice and normal and pleasant to be around. Um, so, and NEC was a great experience. It was very different from West Texas because West Texas is so band focused. And so, um, for, for me and my experience, it was very fundamental focused. And then I went to NEC, which is, you know, all orchestra all the time. I was in the wind symphony there, um, with Charles Pelton. and that was a great experience. But NEC is, you know, I mean, it's right down the sim, right down the street from the BSO. So it's a really orchestral school. And that was a wonderful experience. I fell in love with orchestral playing and learned a lot about excerpts there. As I was wrapping up, I knew I wanted to move straight into my doctorate, and I talked to Svoboda about what schools I might want to go to, and he listed, you know, Indiana among other schools, and that's where I wound up going, studying with Bill Ludwig, um, another really great formative influence for me there. Um, we did a lot of fundamental work, um, a lot of pedagogy work, um, and a lot of solo studies, um, and I really enjoyed my studies with Bill Ludwig. He he taught me how to teach. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I hear his words coming out of my mouth every day. And I, I feel very fortunate for that. He was a wonderful teacher and a wonderful force for good and a wonderful mentor for me. Um, and so was all of Indiana. Very grateful for all of the schools that I went to. So talk us through embarking on your life as a professional and how you got to where you are today. That's a funny story. Um, I finished up at Indiana in um, the spring of one year. Um, and that same year, I applied for a bunch of jobs, you know, like you do. And, <laughs> you know, 
I was living in Indiana at the time and I'm from Dallas. So I had been applying for jobs and I, I think I had made it into like the reference checking round for a few from what I had heard from people, but I didn't, nothing really materialized. Um, and so I decided to move back to Dallas because I knew that was um, a metropolitan area where I could do some private lesson teaching and some gigging. Um, and I decided I was going to try and find some some kind of more stable income. So I applied for a job at UT Arlington um, as the assistant recital hall manager. And I got that job. And I started there October 1st um, of the year I finished my doctorate. And that was, a good, that was a good opportunity for me. I had worked as an usher in Boston, and I'd done some event work um, at a part-time job while I was at Indiana. So, you know, I was like, I had some experience. I was well-suited for it. Um, and then I started teaching adjunct theory in January for the spring semester because I have a doctoral minor from Indiana in theory pedagogy. So that was cool. Um, and then I was obviously applying for bassoon teaching jobs because that wasn't, you know, what I wanted to do. I had a small private studio, um, didn't want to be, you know, an assistant recital hall manager forever because that wasn't the vocation that I wanted for myself. Um, and I, I was offered a job, a full-time bassoon teaching job at another school. Um, and I went to my administration and I told them about it. And they said, no, 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 no. We want to keep you here. And they offered me a full-time job teaching theory. And it was a lecturer position, but it was full-time. And I had just won, like I had just won the Dallas Wins principal job. Mm. And I was just, I wasn't quite ready to go. I was like, ah, Dallas is looking good. Like I'm on the sub lists for the DSO and the Fort Worth Symphony. Like, oh, mm. I think I'm just going to, I think I'm going to stay because the city where I had been offered the teaching job didn't really have much of a, like a, a like a playing scene. Mm-hmm. I made the, I made the call to stay and be theory faculty. Um, and then the next year, it just so happened that um, the bassoon position uh, opened up and I became the professor of both bassoon and theory. Then a few years later, I, but I wasn't tenure track. Then after four years, um, they decided to search the bassoon position. It went tenure track and they searched the position, which is really stressful mm-hmm. when you're in that position because you could lose your job or you could mm-hmm. win your job. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's terrifying. Um, but I'm really glad they did that. I wouldn't have had it any other way. And if I had lost my job that way, I would have understood it and I would have been happy for the person who got it. Um, but I'm proud that I kept my job. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah. And so, so here I am. This is now my eighth. I think I'm, I think I'm in my eighth year at UTA. Maybe this is my ninth year. Heck, I don't even remember. I've been here for a while. (laughs) <laughs> and I've had literally, I, I almost literally worked my way up from the mail room, but it wasn't the mail room. It was the assistant recital hall manager. <laughs> it sounds like your path had opportunities or required at least um, several leaps of faith and some time where you just kind of had to continue working and trusting. And I know that this is kind of an esoteric question, but I feel like those are non-esoteric things that we all have to deal with at times. And so I wonder 
if you could just kind of share um, your thoughts and experiences on that time in your life, things that you learned, advice that you would give people who are maybe still on that path now on the other side that you can kind of in hindsight see that the universe was just putting things in place to get you to where you ultimately needed to be that's 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 a great question and i'll do my best um you know every situation is different and i do consider myself really lucky the way that those opportunities opened up in that order for me Mm -hmm. um and i know that a lot of landing in a tenure track position is being in the right place at the right time. And again, I consider myself really lucky. A lot of it's luck. A lot of it's hard work, but a lot of it is luck. Um, but the advice that I would give someone who's, you know, in the middle of that, you know, looking for that, waiting for that, um, is trust yourself. If you feel like you're in the right place, waiting for the opportunity to open up, then trust your intuition. One of the things that I'm really fortunate to have had is really fantastic administration here at UTA. Um, Like my department and college leadership has always been really superb. And I have never been shy about keeping in close contact with them about what was or wasn't coming down the pipeline and what they wanted from me. Like, what do you want to see from me at the next level? What do you need to see from me? to make this happen. Like, what are you, what are you looking for from a bassoon teacher? What are you, what do you, you know, what do I need to advance? When is this a possibility? Is that not a possibility? Is this going to happen next year? Is that going to happen next year? Mm -hmm. And I wasn't shy about asking those questions and being really direct about what I was interested in and what they wanted to see from me in terms of performance and goals. That takes a lot of courage to do. Yeah. It does. I was, I was forward about it. Um, but I tried to walk that line and it's, I, I will say it is more difficult for women. Just, yeah, I was just thinking that, raised, um, you know, 2000 years of the patriarchy, I'll say it, um, has made it more difficult for us, but, um, I, I just trusted myself and I was, you know, firm, but polite about it. And I just made sure that my administration always knew about the things that I was doing that were good. And I wasn't shy about asking for what I wanted. It was, it was tough. Yeah. Yeah. And trusting that if you do good work, it, it may take time, but that it will pay off. Like I remember younger versions of myself, maybe even not that long ago, feeling like if it's not now, then it's never. Mm Mm-hmm. And I feel like we can tell ourselves that a lot. And sometimes it can take us a little while to, you know, find our place. And that can cause us to have a lot of mental talk that's not necessarily even true. You know, we just all have different paths and they're all just as equally valid. Mm -hmm. No, you're absolutely right. And everybody, everybody is different and we're all going to wind up in different places at different paces. Mm-hmm. Everybody looks different and everybody's going to arrive at their different version of success at their different correct time, as long as they trust themselves and that you're nice to yourself along the way. And that's tough. Mm-hmm. 
One other thing that I might suggest to someone in this position that I just thought of is that um, I always made sure to make sure that I was contributing to the department, like that I was always working on, that I did good committee work and that I maintained interest um, in like what my department chairs were doing and what my other colleagues were doing. And I made sure that I was always like a good all around colleague. Like, I, I mean, I think that probably goes without saying, but just being a good colleague and doing good all around work, not just like clawing to get ahead and be like, the bassoon studio will rule them all. Right. Mm-hmm. You know? So we've, we've hit most of higher ed teaching collegiality service, but you also bring a lot to the table in terms of creative activity. So I would love to kind of shift gears and have you talk to us about um, kind of what sparked your interest in Roger Boutry and the work that you've done um, researching and um, collaborating on expanding uh, the emphasis on his repertoire in the bassoon field. Absolutely. Um, Second to my dog, that is my favorite topping in the whole world. So I would love to talk about that. We can talk about your dog, too. (laughs) Obviously. Uh, I wasn't trying to bring her up. It just happens naturally. (laughs) Anyway, okay, back to to Boutry. So, like every other um, uh, overzealous graduate student... I programmed interferences on one of my doctoral recitals. Actually, it's interferences one is the name of the piece. Um, and I did program notes on it for, you know, some assignment. And I was typing up Boutry's biography and it was, it was like seven sentences long. And in those seven sentences, it talked about how he led the preeminent military band in France, but it wasn't just a band. He expanded it to be band and orchestra. Um, how he taught harmony, at, which is theory, at the Paris Conservatory for over 30 years, um, about how he composed for every instrument and every ensemble, like literally every single one, um, about how he was a pianist who meddled at the very first Tchaikovsky competition, um, about all of the composition awards he's won, like he composed for the Olympics, like all of these like crazy things. And I'm like, he won a Grand Prix to Rome. And I'm like, how, what, what, who is this guy? Like, what is this bio? And how are we not talking about this guy? Like, there has to be a bigger story. Like, with this list of accomplishments, why are we not talking about him? There's a bigger story here. And I looked for more information on him, and I just couldn't find it. Um, and so I thought to myself, I was trying to pick a topic for my dissertation at the time. And I was like, well, you know, this, this looks like a tidy topic. He's still alive. Maybe he'll talk to me. And it took me like a solid three or four weeks, maybe longer, to find him because he was 82 at the time and he didn't speak English um, and didn't have a computer. Um, And so it took a lot me emailing a lot of people, like cold emails to people at the conservatory and people at like various like libraries and archives across France and every like Marc Vallon, I emailed a bunch of people trying to find who knew Boudry. Uh-huh. And I randomly found someone who was a former Harmony student of his and they're like, oh, I'll call him tonight and ask if you can come interview him. I was like, thanks a bunch. And they're <laughs> like, yeah, you can come, um, but he doesn't speak any 
any English. And I was like, well, crap, my second language is Spanish. <laughs> so oh. um, that, that was in October and I worked it out and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to come interview him over Christmas break. And so I started learning French as fast as I could. Um, I, my, my French was crap that December. Um, but my sister came with me. She spoke some French and we organized, um, for a translator. It was, um, a really wonderful gentleman named Adrian McDonald. He's a conductor, an American conductor who's studied over there and has been living there since the eighties. So he translated the interviews. Um, and that was the most magical 12 days of my life. Boutry was an angel. He was warm. He was welcoming. He gave me so many like musical gifts, like scores and like, like I have the autograph score to his bassoon duet. Mm. I could pull out of that file cabinet, Maurice Allard's personal copy of Interferences. Like I have that. (laughs) It's crazy. Like he was just so warm and kind and he opened up and he just like, let me pepper him with questions for days, like days. Um, and he took me to Van Doren and he took me to see the old building of the conservatory and the new building of the conservatory and like Berlioz's grave. And he took me like all over Paris, just showing me like all of the musical sites. It was, he was like my, like fairy musical godfather or something. It was just, it was a really magical time. Um, and I asked him if like, okay, well, you know, he wrote these three concours works, Interferences One, Prism and Tambours. And I was like, okay, well, can I program these three for my lecture recital? And he was like, no, 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 no. No one should ever play Prism and Tambert. Don't, don't play those. I'm not proud of those works. No, please don't, don't play them. Wow. They are played in France, but he was not a fan of them. He was not proud of them. He loves Interferences One. It's like one of his top five pieces that he ever wrote. And he feels that way because he and Maurice Allard had such a great connection. He was just so inspired when he wrote it because Maurice Allard was such a cool guy. Um, but he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to write you a new piece. And I was like, what? Crazy. <laughs> and I freaked out. Um, and he wrote me a new piece, a little set of sketches um, called Croquis. And he had already written a set of sketches, um, a set for violin and a set for saxophone. Um, and you'll see, uh, you can't really see, I'm, and those of you listening can't see at all, but I have three sketches on my office wall, one of bassoon, one of violin, one for saxophone. And I gave him sketches by the same artist of those three um, when we recorded our CD. So we have matching sets of sketches for the three instruments that he wrote sketches for. So that was my gift to him when we recorded. Hi, puppy. Um, anyway, and so that was kind of what kicked it off. And now I've written three IDRS articles that were based off of my dissertation. And I've written an article for the, um, journal of l'association Basson, thanks to Victor Duteau. And I've given some lectures over there and some recital tours like Boutry and I did a recital tour in Paris in 2015. I recorded one CD with him at the piano, which was amazing, um, like surreal, and then I recorded, once his health had declined, I recorded another CD with um, Gina Ford on oboe. She's the principal of the Dallas Opera. Um, she did the oboe, and we recorded his works for bassoon, oboe, and piano. Mathilde Handelsman, she's um, a French-American pianist. She played the piano. Um, Johanna Cox Pennington is also on one piece on that CD, and pianist uh, Dario Yanis Javier is also on one track on that CD. And... Um, our dear friend, um, 
Eric Varner also is on that CD. It's going to come out soon. Um, that's so special. That's amazing. Um, one, we just had on uh, Darren Zubke, and we spoke a lot about French bassoon versus German bassoon and, and his interest in all that. Did Boutry have any um, response or thoughts to you as a German bassoon player, or maybe not even you specifically, just like um, how these works translate to the German bassoon, or was that just like not even a, a thought or really? No, I, I asked him that question specifically, and he said that he didn't really have a preference sound-wise, one or the other. Um, he said that he understood that the French bassoon got around a little bit more easily in the high register, um, and he understood that when he heard students play his pieces on the German bassoon. <laughs> um, but he said the only thing that he did not like hearing was French and German bassoon sitting in the same orchestral section, which oh, I get. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Other than that, that was really his only comment. He said he liked them both, just not together. <laughs> <laughs> so what work of Boutry's other than Interferences 1 would you suggest our listeners consider checking out and potentially programming on their next recital? I mean, I don't have children, but that would be like asking me to choose a favorite <laughs> child. Tough question. Okay, I'm going to be a jerk, and I'm going to say two two different pieces. Um, uh, obviously the first one I have to say is croquis because it's, it's a short, it's an 11 minute work and it's six movements, six really short character movements. And each one has its own brilliant character. Um, a few of the, they're like mixed meter and very jolly. And the, the fifth movement is just slow and beautiful. Um, Boutry didn't characterize his pieces. He wasn't, he didn't put narratives behind them, mm-hmm. but he did. That was the one one of two pieces that had a narrative. The other narrative was an interference was one. Um, but he put a narrative to that slow movement. And he said that it was, the movement was about looking back at your life with melancholy. Mm-hmm. And then there's one moment where you have a happy memory. You can hear it. And then you return to your melancholy. Uh, it's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And the other piece is, um, it's not published yet, but this should be my impetus to hurry up and get it published. Um, but it's it's on the CD that he and I recorded together. It's a transcription he made of Fares Capriccio for piano. And he transcribed oh. it for student solo bassoon. And it's really pretty. When he handed you the croquis, did you immediately burst into tears? Actually, no. It was the weirdest thing because I left. Like, he didn't write it while I was there. I Like, I flew back to Indiana. So he mailed it to you. He did, but he mailed it to me like movement by movement. And so I'm like, I'm like this kid at Christmas <laughs> going to my mailbox every day. I'm like a new movement, a new movement. And I would just, I'd go like rip my bassoon out of its case and sit down and be like, oh my God, this is so cool. Did you like, this is what I would do. I would like save the envelope and the stamps and like turn it into like a scrapbook. <laughs> are all in that file cabinet every single (laughs) (laughs) like how special is that that is so beautiful thank you like i i think so so i thank you for your like appreciation and acknowledgement of that like my relationship with him was really special to me and so 
Yeah, I saved, like, I have so many envelopes and letters and, like, because we, like, we hand wrote letters and forth for, like, years. He eventually get a computer and an email address and an iPhone. He sent me selfies for a while before he passed. It was so cute. I love that you have this, like, irreplaceable archive just in your office of this really incredible historical moment. Thanks. I do too. Like it's, it's like, it really like makes my heart like burst with happiness. Like my work really means a lot to me. And that's how, you know, it's a great research topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just like right, right up in my feelings. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So you told us about some of your incredible research, but I want to hear more about your debut album, French Masterworks for Bassoon and Piano. I would love to talk about that. Um, so I asked Boutry if he wanted to maybe record Croquis, and he responded with, sure, why don't we record this other long list of pieces too? <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, yes, okay. Find time um, <laughs> to record with you, this Tchaikovsky winning pianist. I guess I can make room. <clears throat> um, and so we check like, my calendar. Yeah, <laughs> I guess I can skip teaching and ear training for a week. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but no, uh, we eventually conceived the CD as like a Grand Prix de Rome CD, but he really wanted to put the Fari transcriptions on there. Um, and so then it became non Grand Prix de Rome. So that's why it's French masterworks for bassoon and piano. Um, but it's a really great CD. Um, and I saw that one of the questions, or I know that one of the questions you usually ask is like, what's a hidden gem that you like? Um, and I think there's a hidden gem on that CD and it's the, um, Vidal Adagio and Saltarelle. It's kind of a quirky piece, but it's really cool. Ryan Romine has also recorded it. So don't just listen to my recording. Listen to Ryan's as well. Um, it's a really great piece. Like there's some nifty chords in it and some like things that'll make you go like, what? Like, oh, okay. That's a, that's an interesting compositional device, but it's a great piece for a professional or, you know, like a good college student. Um, just a nifty little piece. Um, but I, I was really happy with how the CD turned out. Um, it's got some classics on it, you know, due to your PNA, um, and then the newer pieces from Boutry and me. So listen, if you haven't checked it out, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so navigating all this French repertoire, first of all, it just scares me to think about. I remember that high F and actually, isn't it a slur to a high E that's actually more scary in the Boutry? He at least lets you approach the F chromatically, right? Anyway, this gets me thinking about reeds and that in order to play all this French rep on the bassoon, you must be a killer reed maker. So teach me your ways. Fill <laughs> it. My, well, the secret to my high register is um, play a lot of Boutry for many, many years. Um, <laughs> and then eventually I was so proud for my last set of recitals, like the set that I just wrapped up in France and the recital I did before I left. I like was so surprised. I didn't change reeds or vocals for anything in the recital. I just like the high E's, the high F's, everything. No trick vocals, no trick reeds. I was like surprised at myself. I was really proud of that. Um, 
But I, my whole philosophy for reads and teaching is eliminating variables. I'm very much a proponent of work with what you have. So pick a shape, pick a profiler. I'm a very middle of the road read maker. I don't, I'm not a Hertzbergian type. I like, I have a middle of the road shape, a middle of the road profile, a middle of the road approach. And I teach my students to do the same thing every time. And once they get that really consistent, if there's something they want to change about their reads, if they want more of this or less of this, then we change one single variable at a time. And once they get consistent at changing that one variable, then we can look at changing one other variable at a time. Um, and I think that consistency is the real key to read making. Because I think that over time, people's read styles are going to shift. I think that we're smart enough as human beings that we're just going to adapt naturally. And my goal is nothing but consistency. And so far, that's worked. I've never made a conscious shift in my read style. My only conscious read thing over the course of my life has been consistency. Mm-hmm. And other than that, awesome. I try to, everybody else is like, try this, try this, try that. No, you're using the wrong sandpaper. You need this file or this mandrel. I'm like, like, no, I'm just going to make reads. I'll be over here making reads, tuning you all out, doing my own thing. That said, everybody has a read style. It works for them. And I tell my students every day, like for every talented bassoonist you hear, and there are many of them. Each one of them has a different read style that they swear by, and that read style works. So mm -hmm. that's me. But again, there are millions of or thousands of talented bassoonists out there, and each one of them has a great read style. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like the trick to a great high register is to cultivate it regularly and not just pull out those notes when you need them. <laughs> Dang it. Which is disappointing. I hate team. that. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> yes. Sorry, team. Predictable, but disappointing nonetheless. I know. Like, it's that moment where you're like, dang it, I have to practice what I preach. Uh -uh. <laughs> I hate that for all of us. <laughs> like, don't listen to what we're saying, students. <laughs> this part of the conversation doesn't exist. <laughs> okay, so you talked us through your reads. And I'm on board. So... No, I want to study with you. Just kidding. I play the oboe. Um, talk us through your teaching. What are, what's your teaching philosophy? My teaching philosophies don't discriminate. So if you want to study with me, come on in. Okay. <laughs> I'm coming. <laughs> okay, perfect. Sold. Um, no, my teaching philosophy is um, also eliminate variables. So like try to sit the same way every day, try to use the metronome every day, try to write down your metronome tempos every day. Like if you don't remember what your metronome tempo was every day, that's a variable. If you finished up yesterday at 84 and you're starting today at 72 or 94, that's an unnecessary variable. And that's time that you are wasting figuring out your tempo or potentially building in bad habits by practicing too fast. And so I really try to cultivate intelligent practice in my studio because lives are too short to spend time with bad practice. Mm -hmm. um, so eliminate those variables, spend your time efficiently. That said, 
the other major part of my teaching philosophy is giving copious praise when praise is due. And that's a lot of the time because students are improving so much more rapidly than they think they are. I find that my students almost never give themselves enough credit. And so I try to be the person who's doing that. I don't give false praise. Um, I am not a participation trophy kind of gal. But I am very much the type of person who looks very carefully to find every way that a student is improving and make sure that my students know how well and how consistently they're improving each week. Because I think that's really important. Though there are, you know, this is a tough, cruel world. Um, and I want my students to know how much I value their hard work and how well they're doing on a daily and weekly basis. So. I like to heap consistent, well-earned praise on my students at every possible opportunity. Mm -hmm. I also don't mince words when things are wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> I deliver that, you know, directly um, and when it's needed. But I, I really want my students to know when things are going right and try to build up their self-esteem at every possible opportunity because I think that's really important. Yeah, they need it. Yes, we all do. You told us about some special moments uh, with Boutry, which were awesome. But I wonder if any other memories of a past performance stick out in your mind as particularly special that you'd like to share with us. Um, I remember it wasn't actually a performance. It was a recording session. And I know I sound like a broken record. But it was when I was recording that CD with Boutry, and we were recording Capriccio, that foray transcription. And I remember in that recording studio recording this one moment where I've got twos against his threes pretty early on in the piece. And I remember thinking, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever played. And I don't know if I will ever be this happy again. But it wasn't in a sad way. Like, I wasn't like, oh, what a bummer. I'll never be this happy. But it was like, this is the happiest, most fulfilled I have ever been. I'm in Paris. I'm working with a musical legend. I'm in a beautiful recording studio playing gorgeous music that was transcribed for me. I'm so happy. Like, I'm just so happy. And it was, it was great. Another moment was when I was a freshman, um, I made Texas small school Allstate. I mentioned that we moved when I was in eighth grade. So we moved to a small town. And so I made Texas small school Allstate when I was a freshman. Um, I probably was, I definitely was not good enough at that juncture, you know, see my previous notes about not being able to count or sight read um, to make Texas big school Allstate. But I made small school Allstate and I was bottom cheer in the bottom band, but I made it. And that was the greatest musical experience of my life to date. And we were playing in the dress rehearsal and I cried and I wasn't an overly emotional ninth grader, but I had never participated in anything like that before. And I was like, music is amazing. Mm -hmm. I like so many people, like all the emotions of the entire week. And I just, I cried. And I wasn't, I'd never cried at movies. I had never cried at anything like at a, like, you know, an emotional card. Like I didn't really cry when I was sad very often. I just, I wasn't a crier. And I was just sitting there bawling in the middle of this dress rehearsal. It was surreal for me. Mm, that is beautiful. 
And now I wonder if you could offer us the flip side of that, perhaps <laughs> anything terrifying or embarrassing or horrifying or funny or funny that has ever happened to you in a performance. No, I've always been uh, calm, cool, collected, and nothing, nothing funny or embarrassing has ever happened to me. I don't know what you do with your lives. <laughs> um, no, I remember I was a freshman and I was fortunate enough to be playing on an honors recital. I was playing the 4A piece. I was very proud of myself. It's all in center clef. I was with it. And I was going to go sit down on my chair on stage. And somehow I managed to knock my crutch off my bassoon. And I didn't drop my crutch. It went like skittering all the way across the stage. And of course, I'm like 18 years old and I'm wearing like high heels and I never wear high heels. And I'm like tottering across the stage, <laughs> chasing this crutch that's oh still moving. And I'm like bending, like I'm trying to like figure out how to like bend over and get the crutch in oh my high heels. And I'm just like, oh my God, I've never been so humiliated in my entire life. <laughs> and the audience was just like, I could hear them like laughing. And oh. I felt like such a, I was just like, I'm a freshman in my first. Like, I'm 18. I'm just a baby. <laughs> um, and every time I go on stage now, I tighten my crutch. <laughs> we call that growth. Yes, we call that growth. <laughs> yeah, that was it. That was like I'm I burned in my memory. Like I can still hear the sound of that crutch bouncing across the stage. Like I can hear it. Brutal. It was brutal. Well, let's end on a high note and have you tell us what advice you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours. Practice a lot, practice efficiently, and be nice to yourself because you're doing a better job than you ever could imagine that you're doing. Also, listen more carefully to your teacher and take notes during your lessons because they're giving you better advice more frequently than you're aware of. And that's not you, that's just human nature. Most people need to be told something three times before they retain it. But if you take notes in your lesson and you only need to be told once, how much more quickly could you improve? That's just logic. Anyway, but that's my advice. Practice frequently, practice intelligently, and be nice to yourself. Laura, thank you so much for spending this hour with us. It has been an absolute dream. We just can't thank you enough. It's seriously my pleasure. This has been such a blast. Thank you both so much. Thank you so much for listening to this awesome interview with Laura Bennett Cameron. Please go to our social media, Facebook, Instagram. We're not super on Twitter, so you can skip Twitter if you want to. Uh, listen on all of the listening spaces and rate and review on iTunes. Jackie, who do we have coming up on the next episode of Double Read Dish? We're welcoming Master Gunnery Sergeant Leslie Barrett, co-principal oboe in the President's Own United States Marine Band. Galit, it is time to end this nerd parade. 
Jackie, you personally go make reads.